two uh, daughters, both, um, uh, or her two sons. I was very confused. They're like two daughters. Where'd that come from? Uh, her two sons, uh, Malon and Chilion, um, had married two Moabite women, and then they both, uh, her sons, ended up dying in Moab as well. Um, so famously in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, uh, Ruth, after being urged to follow Orpah back to Moab, makes this profound and very godly commitment to Naomi uh, to follow her wherever she goes, to adapt her people and for her God to be her God. And where she dies, she will die. Where Naomi is buried, she'll be buried. And so Naomi enters back into Bethlehem as a widow uh, with Ruth. And in chapter 2, just by providence, um, Ruth ends up taking the initiative to go and work so that Naomi can have food. And she ends up in the field of this man, Boaz, who ends up embracing her and exalting her, giving her as much food as she needs and encouraging her in her work. And he just takes really careful note of the fact that this Moabite foreigner is working in his fields, even with the allowances of the law of Moses, specifically to take care of this deceased widow that was a relative of his own family. Uh, So in chapter 3, we're going to see Naomi really take advantage of this situation in a very thoughtful and very generous way. And the quote that I have here on the board is something Boaz says that I think really gets to the heart of why this book is so important. It really is a book dealing with redemption. And it really focuses on redemption as far as a narrative more than any other book of the Bible that we have. And there's just so many parallels in Ruth that the more we understand these events in relation to Jesus and how we've been redeemed, the more amazing all of these things really become and how woven together this is to God's overall plan. Um, So we'll see that in just a moment. I've titled this chapter just Seeking Redemption um, because Naomi and Ruth who need to be redeemed, end up here taking a lot of initiative to make sure that that's, that's, that happens. So we're going to start with looking at Naomi's plan for that in verses 1 through 7. Remember, she's a destitute widow whose, whose role really has been right now to allow Ruth just to take care of her and to go out and work so that she could be provided for as well. Verses 1 through 7. Then Naomi, her, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter... Shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. It shall be, when he lies down, that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. She said to her, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Just before we get into the details of this plan, like just notice how deeply Naomi had been thinking about this. This is a really strange idea she has that you don't find anywhere else in the Bible. Like, there's no other place where somebody goes to somebody else's feet and, like, the female makes the marriage proposal, in a sense, to the male and, like, does it at night secretly. This is just really unique and really strange, kind of difficult to figure out. But I think it does show that Naomi had been extremely thoughtful 
about almost like scheming this plan together and thinking about what the, the best way would be to make this appeal to Boaz. And I want you to notice too, Deuteronomy 25, like everybody in this account is careful to do things lawfully, which is really fascinating the more we understand that. So in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5, there, there's a number of places in the Old Testament where this idea of redeeming something in a relative's property or family that had been lost or was endangered, there's a lot of passages that deal with redeeming those things back so that it could be perpetuated or endure, not be lost outside of the family. Um, Deuteronomy 25.5 says, When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside of the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of husband's brother to her. That's basically what Naomi is appealing to here. Uh, there's a sense where Naomi, because of that law and other laws like it, God has actually given her a right specifically to make the kind of appeal that happens in this chapter. And that's going to be one of the interesting things that I want to deal with as an application, that God had granted a right to be given that although it was a right, it was still appealed to in a most humble kind of manner. Because Ruth, in a sense, being a foreigner, Naomi being a widow, like there's this great sense of humility and unworthiness that's involved in this appeal. Um, so we'll, we'll be developing that as we, as we go further. But just look at the question in verse 1 again more specifically. What had she been thinking about specifically for Ruth? says, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? So think like, Ruth had the ability to work. She was a young woman and the law gave allowance for people to like, you know, gather wheat out of the corners of a field or things that were dropped. So Ruth was using what she could do to provide and be generous for Naomi. And Boaz, he was an owner of the property and the fields and the servants. So I mean, in chapter 2, we saw Boaz be incredibly generous to Ruth in not only supplying her the food that she needed, but even giving her more than she needed and giving her a promise of protection in the field. And then, you remember in verse 14, he even gave her more assurance than that by feeding her food at his table and inviting her up to his table. So there's just a lot of things that Boaz did with what he could do to be as generous as he could be with what he had. And I think this is Naomi's turn for that. So all Naomi has is this lawful right. <laughs> That's it. But she has like thought so deeply about how she could use this lawful right that she had for Ruth's sake. So now really it's her turn to be very generous with what she possessed, even though in, in a sense it seems like what she possessed was very little. It actually is the triggering point for like the glory of what this book turns out to be all about, is Ruth's ability to discern this and act on it. Um, so she knows Boaz's character as well, which I think is interesting. She has assurance in verse 3 that um, Boaz, I'm sorry, at the end of verse 2, he's going to be at the threshing floor with his men, which is strange because, remember, Boaz, uh, Boaz was not a servant. He was one of the people who actually, well, he was the owner of the fields. So being the owner of the field, it seems unusual that you would go and be with your men who are actually doing the work. But I think he understood that he needed protection, uh, needed to protect his assets and just be present, you know, especially thinking about the book of Judges and the condition of the nation. 
Um, so she has assurance in his character in that regard, but in the end of verse 4 as well, notice that she has assurance that Boaz will accept her appeal. Even though, again, this is a very strange appeal, she still understands something about Boaz that gives her confidence to give Ruth the assurance to anticipate that Boaz will know what to do and what to say at the end of all of this. So, and then the thing that she says to Ruth, the instructions that she gives. Um, it can look like this is something that's being uh, almost too forward in a lot of ways, uh, specifically because it's Ruth who's making the appeal. Um, she's really initiating this proposal in a sense because to re be redeemed in this regard would really mean that she would need to get married to Boaz. So she's urging Ruth to take the initiative in this, but in verse 3, uh, she urges her to wash herself, anoint herself, put on her best clothes, so like really make herself beautiful and as presentable as possible, like make sure she doesn't like smell sweaty and nasty. And then she tells her as well to go down and lay at his feet and not to make herself known to him until he's finished eating and drinking. Kind of like that style, by the way, of like waiting until he's finished eating. I think that's like a very like womanly perceptiveness about the best time. Um, but again, like it can look really strange that she would be going to Boaz alone at night to go where he's sleeping. Uh, so we'll want to work on this a little bit to figure out like why this would be a wise or humble approach. Um, I think for one, the idea involved in this is giving Boaz the opportunity to say no quietly without it being like anything public that has to be dealt with in the process of um, accepting or rejecting this proposal of redemption. Uh, Deuteronomy 25 also gets into the fact that when somebody like does not want to redeem their relative, like their sandal has to be taken off and they get spit in the face and they like say, you know, this is the man who would refuse to take up his uh, brother's uh, name. Um, so in a sense, it's giving Boaz the freedom to say no. Uh, but I think it also her laying at his feet and just asking him to like, you know, extend the covering that was over his feet is, is like a way of saying that she would strive to be as little a burden as possible being redeemed by him. Uh, we're going to see in chapter 4 that there was actually a closer relative and the closer relative will not redeem Ruth because he feels it would endanger his own inheritance. And I think a part of this proposal on Ruth's part would be trying to convey how little a burden that she would strive to be to what Boaz already had as his own inheritance. Um, I think another thing, too, is how submissive this looks to Boaz from his perspective for her to lay specifically at his feet. Um, it almost seems like an act of desperation, um, almost like it's showing how desperate she is to be safe and secure in his protection. Um, so all of that may have been conveyed, that may be may looking in the wrong direction about it, um, but I think there might be things to see in that that you see that um, would be valid as well. Um, it's just, again, it's, it's a very difficult, very interesting thing to think about why she would have specifically made this appeal to Boaz. Um, so let, let's look at verse 8 through 13 and see how Boaz reacts and uh, responds to this appeal. It happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward. And behold, a woman was lying at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she said, I am Ruth, your maid, so spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. 
The translation there, by the way, might say redeemer. It's the same Hebrew word that just literally means redeemer there. Verse 10, then he said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether rich or poor. Rather, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask, for all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Now, it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you good, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. Uh, I think the first thing to maybe think about with this is in verse 8. This obviously takes Boaz off guard. He wakes up in the middle of the night. Um, I don't know if you've ever had a person wake you up in the middle of the night or you've ever been startled and woken up, but usually I'm not in a clear frame of mind to like have a conversation immediately, much less actually think deeply about like something as important as what Boaz is being presented with here, right? Um, and I think it's amazing that instead of being like frustrated or angered or so taken off guard that he doesn't want to have a conversation, um, instead he responds so quickly in such a godly and thoughtful way. And I think what this shows is that Boaz, like Naomi, had already been thinking very carefully and very deeply about Ruth and about the potential of taking her as his wife. Um, I think you especially see in verse 10 that Boaz seems to have accumulated a great sense of admiration for Ruth and love. And really, it's like he was just waiting for her to make a move and giving her the freedom to make her own choices. But you can tell that he's just very thrilled that she would be willing to allow him to take her as his wife. Um, And another habit of Boaz in verse 10 that I think is worth noting, he constantly recognizes God's name very quickly in his words and conversation. Uh, Look back at verse 5, or 4, rather, of chapter 2. Uh, when Boaz like refers to his men, these are the first these are the first words we hear from Boaz in this book. Uh, he tells his men working, "May the Lord be with you," and they say in return, "May the Lord bless you." And we just see over and over again Boaz just continuously referring to God in these high and glorified ways. Verse 12 of the same chapter, when he's referring to Ruth and giving her assurance when she's working in his field. Says, may the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. So with that, uh, verse 9 of chapter 3, going back to chapter 3. I think it may be worth noting that Ruth's appeal is, is spoken in a very careful way that may be referring back to what he said in chapter 2, verse 12. Um, for her to say, cover your maid or spread your covering over your maid, it's almost like she's appealing to him to remember the same words that he had once said to her. It had been maybe a few months or a few weeks based on the end of chapter 2 that she stayed with her mother-in-law until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. Um, But it could be that she's trying to put that back into his mind, that original blessing that he had wished upon her. Now she's giving him the opportunity to be the answer to that prayer, be that blessing. So verse 10 again. Um... I'm not sure who exactly who he's referring to when he says, you have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men with a rich report. I'm not sure if he means your last kindness to, to him being Boaz is better than the first. Um, maybe the kindness to Naomi 
in that she at the first was just getting Naomi food from his fields, but now she's like really going to be getting a permanent true security for Naomi. Uh, I'm not sure if she means for her dead husband uh, that she is showing kindness to her husband by lawfully allowing one of his relatives to perpetuate his name. It could be all of those things that he means. Um, I tend to just personally think that he may be referring to Naomi primarily and that he just in the nature of what she's doing and the appeal, I think it's apparent that he can tell that Naomi really is the one who's instigated this idea and that she's really being submissive to something that Naomi has urged her to do, right? I think he recognizes that Ruth is just such a woman of excellence and she's really forfeiting any kind of self-fulfilled desire of glory that she could have got from pursuing other men. You know, and Boaz seems to infer from his words that Ruth may have been a very beautiful woman. In verse 11, she's well known as a woman of excellence. So from his perspective, you know, it could be that he would think that there's lots of people that this woman could choose to marry and that she would have total freedom to make that decision herself and be blameless in it. But the fact that she's willing to submit herself to someone like Boaz, who's not a young guy, to take care of her, to perpetuate the name of the deceased, and to redeem the property and redeem Naomi is just an act of great wisdom and submission. Um, Verse 12 and 13. I think it's worth noting and so amazing. Boaz is willing to forfeit a marital opportunity that he wants and desires for the sake of God's judgment. Think about this. He's obviously very passionate about Ruth. He admires her. He loves her. But if God's law would require that he not be able to marry her, then he's willing to stay with God's judgment and the consequences for him of that judgment. And I think what that shows about Boaz and his character, God's judgment holds greater control of his will than his own passions, lusts, and desires. And think about how rare that is. Like, I don't know about you guys, but I've known a lot of people personally Like, they'll be unscripturally divorced. Sometimes it might not be their fault. And I've known people personally who at first, they'll completely agree that, okay, I get it. Like, you know, I don't have now lawful right by God's word to be able to remarry. But then they end up meeting somebody. After some time goes by, they end up loving this person, admiring them. And then all of a sudden they're restudying God's law and finding like all these loopholes that they didn't see there before that, well, now they just have all this liberty that they didn't realize that they had. Boaz is not like that. And I think it's amazing that somebody, again, in the time of the judges, a place of chaos, and when God's law was being disregarded, it seems, primarily, here's this person in the midst of that culture who is so careful to make sure that his affairs are being completely guided and controlled by God's will in his time. I just think that's just, it just says so much about the glory of God's work in Boaz's heart and why it is that God could use Boaz for such a significant purpose. Um, So he gives her uh, the commitment that if this closer relative, though, won't redeem her, that he'll still do it. Um, And it's worth noting as well that obviously Naomi and Ruth, like, They may have known about this closer relative, they may have not. And just the fact that Boaz is willing to bring that up to them, even if that may have seemed very disappointing to Ruth and almost like a letdown for all this that had been going on, working in his field and building this relationship, 
Boaz still had the boldness in return to suggest what was more fitting with God's law in comparison. Uh, So let's look at Naomi's assurance because of the way that Boaz then sends Ruth back. Verse 14 through 18. So she laid his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Again, he said, give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it and he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. She said, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then she said, wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. Uh, Verse 14, again, showing more insight into the quality of Boaz's character. Don't you find it interesting that Boaz was trying to protect Ruth's reputation, even in how he sent her out. Um, I think just inferred from his words, he wanted to make sure that it didn't appear as if Ruth was like coming to him for anything sexual, you know, but making sure that this this interaction could be pure and properly private. Um, Just like going the extra mile to preserve that, I think is very admirable. Um, And then in verse 15, he gives her a huge amount of barley to take back to Naomi. Um, I kind of looked up what exactly the amount may have been. Um, there's a lot of people who give a lot of different measurements, so I think it's, it's hard to say definitively, but I mean, it could have been as much as like 30 pounds of barley that she was given to take back to Naomi. So you imagine like she has in her cloak this just gigantic sack of barley that she's taking back that sends a pretty clear message that things had gone pretty well um, with the request she made. Um, so verse 16, um, Naomi's response initially Literally, the text reads, Who are you, my daughter? Um, The New American Standard reads, uh, How did it go, my daughter? But there's a margin that says, literally, Who are you? Seems like she's anticipating so uh, assuredly that uh, Boaz would accept the appeal. Like, it's almost like, So have you taken his name already? Like, you know, was the deed done? Um, And the next best thing is really what Ruth says, that these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, don't go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. I think Boaz wanted to make sure that Naomi understood that her plan had been successful. You know, that Boaz was willing to listen, he was going to hear it out, and he was going to act on it. So in verse 18, Naomi then responds, he will not rest until he has settled the matter today. And that's going to lead into chapter 4, so we'll we'll wait on uh, explaining more about that until we we get there. Um, But just some reflections on this that I I want to point out to make this a little more relatable um, as far as applications. One thing that I want to think about is how we can approach God as Ruth approached uh, Boaz. Um, Go to Hebrews chapter 4. There's a couple things that I think are worth noting in Hebrews 4. Um, The first one is verse 9 through 11. Uh, So Ruth, at the beginning of the chapter, Naomi was trying to get rest and security for her. So even even though Ruth had been working in Boaz's field, ultimately, even though they were getting food for themselves every day and Boaz was being very generous about that, like Ruth still had not been redeemed in that process though, right? So like the name of the deceased had really not been perpetuated the property that belonged to Elimelech was still not belonging to Ruth or Naomi. 
Um, and Naomi was ultimately still a widow without the care that she could receive if they were redeemed. So again, like there, there was some sense of security they had, but it was really temporary. And there was a greater rest and security that Naomi understood God was pointing them to in the process of the relationship with Boaz. So the, the principle first here is that we also need to, per, need to pursue with diligence God's true rest. Look at verse 9. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. This is talking about this rest that's ahead of us being heaven and dwelling with God. It says, Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. You can kind of see through the book of Ruth, it's almost like as the story progressed from chapter 2 to 3, the sense of eagerness and thrill in seeing the hope that they had in this circumstance, like growing and abounding and almost like overflowing in just how Boaz responded to Ruth when he actually saw her at his feet. Um, I think that's the idea of verse 11. When we're serving God, ultimately like the thrill of our hope and the idea of the security that God is promising ultimately should be leading us to have greater and greater diligence as we're pursuing that hope. And look at verse 14. Um, just the way in principle that Ruth approached Boaz with, in a, in a sense, great boldness, but also with great humility at the same time, I think is also a principle of how we approach God as well. Uh, look at verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things uh, as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So just to think about Ruth and Boaz again really quick. Ruth's confidence was in Boaz's character, and so was Naomi's. I think the boldness also was, was increased by the fact that Ruth and Naomi were in an incredibly desperate situation. And really a part of how Ruth came to Boaz was an act of humble desperation. And I think those same things are in the text here. It's not just that we're being told to go to God. The therefore in verse 16 is pointing back to verse 15. Really our, our assurance and our confidence to approach God is based in the character of Jesus. And look at the things specifically said about his character. That Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses. So just like Boaz had sympathy on Ruth as a foreigner, Jesus has sympathy on us and our weakness. And just like our desperation as we serve God is in the times when we're tempted and striving to cling to God and look for his deliverance in times of temptation, Jesus himself also was tempted in all ways, yet without sin. So Jesus understands the need for deliverance. Jesus understands the need for assurance. Jesus understands the value of having the assurance that God is willing to hear you and act to deliver you. And it's based on that confidence and that humility in verse 16 that some translations we say that we come boldly before the throne of God. So again, it's not like an arrogant, you know, approach to God as if he's our genie and must grant our wishes. It's simply an assurance in God's character and his willingness to fulfill a very serious need that we have that he's the only one who can fulfill it. 
Um, so we humbly approach God on the basis of his character and guidance. But go back to the book of Ruth. There's another kind of interesting type that I just want to briefly sweep over before getting into the second um, reflection here. Uh, verse 3, I think, is, is interesting. So notice what Naomi specifically told her to do. Wash, anoint, and put on your best clothes. As we're looking for redemption, we, in a more fulfilled and spiritual way, do those same things. When we're baptized, we're washing our sins away. God is washing our sins away. We're being anointed by God with the Spirit. And we're also clothing ourselves with Christ. So there's the sense where when we're coming to God and making that desperate appeal, there's a very similar process of instruction that we follow to become presentable to God at the same time. Um, so all of, just all of the things in this account have such incredible layers and parallels uh, that just show the beauty of what God is willing to do for us as well. So just the second and last reflection. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, so this is on the note of the fact that Boaz was so careful not just here, but even in chapter 2, Boaz was constantly careful to give Ruth extra assurances that with him she could find safety and security and prosperity. But ultimately in chapter 3, even though it was just like a lot of barley, even if it was 30 pounds, it still, in Naomi's eyes, was a sufficient pledge of showing his willingness to keep his word and redeem her. And we'll see in chapter 4 that uh, Boaz will act with swift immediacy to make it all happen. Um, look at Ephesians 1. So this whole chapter leading up to verse 13 is filled with assurances of just how diligent and eager God is to fulfill everything involved with the beginning of our salvation. But look at verse 13 and 14 specifically. It says, In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, Having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Look back at verse 7, just really quick, with this idea of redemption. Verse 14 presents a picture that we're still, in a sense, not fully redeemed. Like, there's still a sense where even though we've been redeemed, we're still seeking the greater redemption where we're redeemed into God's kingdom fully without any separation from God. Verse 7 mentions that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So there is a sense where we've been redeemed, but having been redeemed, we are still looking forward to the greater redemption that we've still been promised and are hoping for. So 13 and 14 of this chapter, what have we been given? that serves as our pledge of God's commitment. You know, Boaz gave wheat, which was nice, and would have fed them, and it would have, you know, been a lot of food for the day. But we've been giving something so much greater, a seal by the Holy Spirit of promise. Imagine if Ruth and Naomi had a really bad day before Boaz came back. Wouldn't it be silly for them to think, like, oh, well, I guess it's not going to happen, you know, like, my circumstances, like, this is so bad, like, Boaz must not be coming back. That, that wouldn't even make sense. I mean, all they would have to do is just wait a little while, and the hope of being redeemed would, I'm sure, carry them through whatever circumstances they face in the process. And I think the same with us. Go to Psalm 27. Um, I think the psalmists 
understood in principle um, really some of the same points about their relationship with God. Look at Psalm 27, verse 11 through the end of the chapter. Really the idea here is the psalmist having assurance that although his circumstances were turbulent and distressing, even though he was surrounded by enemies and things were working against God's promise in his life, he still had this anchored sense of assurance that God was still working and would fulfill the things he had originally promised. Look at Psalm 27, verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. really think that's the same idea. David, who wrote Psalm 27, even though there were things surrounding him that were obviously very distressing, he still had the calm assurance to remember God's faithfulness meant more to him in the assurance that provided than the instability of his circumstances in the process. Um, one last thing. Go to Ezekiel 16 um, on this note. Um, so this kind of serves as just a sobering warning, I guess, of just how important it is to just understand these things that God has done and just how valuable these fundamental truths are of our faith and salvation. Um, Ezekiel 16, if, if you remember from our Ezekiel study, this is a, a very vivid picture that God paints of his relationship with Jerusalem. And he pictures Jerusalem as this baby who is thrown into an open field. Uh, in verse 4, her cord, her navel cord was not cut, just abandoned and nobody giving any pity to clean her or take care of her. So in verse 6, God passes by and ends up feeding and nourishing and caring for this baby so that it lives makes her numerous, makes her beautiful. And in verse 8 it says, I passed by you and saw you, and behold, you were at the time for love, so I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I swore to you and entered a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord. God did for Israel ultimately what Boaz did for Ruth. Israel was not worthy to receive what they received from God. They were not worthy to be in that covenant. And as this chapter goes on, it details these abominable acts of adultery that Israel had committed against God as her husband because they had forgotten their unworthiness and forgotten about the condition that they once were in that led them to this desperate condition in needing a redeemer. And that, in principle is exactly the position we need to keep ourselves in to continue to serve and value the grace of God, is remembering where we've come from and the desperation that we have even still to need a redeemer, like Ephesians 1 verse 14, to ultimately fulfill his promises still. Um, so we'll, we'll stop the lesson there. Um, if you're here and you're not a Christian, um, the appeal is to just understand your circumstance in not being redeemed by God and the promise that he's offering to enter you into his kingdom and care for you and protect you and offering eternal life on top of the promise of the present life. Um, if there's anything that needs to be brought forward to the church, whether it be a prayer request or confession of sin, um, bring it forward at this time when we stand and sing invitation song.